We're going to be starting a three-week series for Christmas, looking at three different passages from the book of Luke. The first one is Mary's Magnificent from chapter 1. We'll be doing that this morning. Then we'll be, as he mentioned, talking about Zacharias and his prophetic utterance, as well as the passage in Luke chapter 2 regarding Simeon and Anna the prophetess. These aren't so much prophecies as in predicting the future. There's some of that in there, but they're rather reflections, if you will, by the individuals. And that's what I find kind of fascinating about these three things here. Um, where, where we are this morning actually comes right after, as you saw in the song that we just played, Mary has been visited by the angel Gabriel. He makes a pretty profound announcement to her, something certainly she was completely not expecting. There was some expectation in Jerusalem around this time, some pretty significant anticipation that Messiah was coming. Luke actually tells us that um, in his gospel, we'll cover that probably the third week, that there was an expectation, an anticipation. They knew something was happening. There had been 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testament. Um, But what's interesting is even in some of the non-scriptural writings by some of the Jews in Israel at the time, especially the Essenes and others, um, there's an increase in the amount of prophetic, prophetic literature that they actually write for about 200 years leading up to this. God was certainly doing something. But it's still probably highly unlikely that Mary, sitting there as what we believe to be probably a 13 or a 14 year old young girl, to be visited by Gabriel and be told ultimately that she would be giving birth to his son, the Messiah. Now obviously the song that we just played is an interpretation of maybe what was going on in her heart and mind at that time, but we don't have to necessarily rely on that because we actually have Mary's response here in the scriptures. And it's kind of of interesting what she does here. There's two parts to her Magnificat. You might wonder where that name came from, Magnificat. It's basically just the Latin phrase for magnify. It comes right from the first verse of her Magnificat. But there's two parts to this. In the first part, verses 46 through 50, she rejoices over what God has done for her personally. The second part of it is verses 51 through 55, when she rejoices over what God has done for Israel. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on those first sections, but we'll cover all of it here. Now one of the remarkable things about this song is that it's filled with tons of allusions to the Old Testament. There are as many as 12 different allusions or references, but there's even a quote, back to the Old Testament. Now think about this for a minute. Mary, as far as we know, was a young girl, 13 or 14. Young boys were raised oftentimes in the synagogues and they were taught theology, they were taught the Old Testament scriptures. That was part of their upbringing. It was part of their schooling. That was not the case for girls. And yet Mary in this psalm shows this incredible understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and her God. And that's going to be reflected in here. And so when we look at her and we think, here she is visited by this angel to tell her about what's about to happen to her. And she fully understood what God had promised in the Old Testament. And to now find herself as the one who will be part of that fulfillment had to be overwhelming for her. And we're going to see that reflected here with the awe that she has for what God has done. And I'll try to make some um, references to these allusions and other things as we go through it. 
But we're going to actually start in verses 46 through 50. Let me read just the first two verses for you. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. So Mary's going to actually rejoice here over what God has done for her personally. It all begins, we're told here, with this exaltation. That's not a word that we often use. When was the last time you used the word exalt? It really means to praise or to magnify or to glorify. Generically or generally, it just refers to making something great, to magnify something. You think about a magnifying glass. You know, all of us as kids played with magnifying glasses probably. But when it's used of a person, it actually refers to talking about their greatness or praising them for their greatness. So, to magnify them, to lift them up. In this case, Mary is ultimately praising God for his greatness. She's going to share with us some of that in the second half of this, what it is that makes God so great. But it begins with this personal reflection on herself. It's, her praise here is more than just what I'm going to call mere lip service. You know, we hear that often. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord! You know, and it's almost as if we don't give it a second thought as to what that really means. And so it can be lip service oftentimes. But with Mary, it's certainly not lip service. It's something that includes her mind, her will, it includes her emotions. Notice that she says, my soul exalts the Lord. That's language we find in the Psalms. The soul was the innermost being. It was the seat of our hearts, our thinking, our emotions. It's what David uses oftentimes in the Psalms. So this isn't just Mary saying, praise praise God. It is something that is rising up from deep within her. It is an emotional response. But it also involves her mind, but also her will. She is fully invested in this. Notice she couples this statement with a parallel one. Notice that this is very similar to Hebrew poetry. There's some parallelism here. She starts by saying, My soul, my innermost being, exalts the Lord, praises Him, lifts Him up. But then she follows it up, just like Hebrew poetry, with this parallel statement, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. And there we see the emotions. There's this joy that's filtered. I can't imagine this. If all of a sudden the the room that I was sitting in, if I were a young woman, if all of a sudden an angelic being burst into my room, told me that I was going to be pregnant, that I was going to be carrying God's son, and that ultimately he would become the descendant of David that would save the world, I don't know that my first response would be joy. I'd probably be freaked out. I'd probably be afraid. I'd be wondering what my family is going to say when I tell them that I'm pregnant with God's child. They would probably think I'm nuts. But what fills her heart is joy, and it's because she understood what this meant. Not just for herself personally, but what it meant for the nation of Israel. And so she says, My spirit has rejoiced and again she does what she did in that first verse there when she says my soul exalts it's now my spirit this is all a deeply personal emotional mindful willful rejoicing and praising it just wells up from within her now obviously the object of Mary's exaltation her rejoicing it's obviously the Lord but you know it's not just the Lord notice how she refers to him This is the Lord who saved her. Notice she refers to him there as 
God, my Savior. That's where this all begins. The first thought she has is about what the Lord has done for her personally. And it begins with the concept of salvation. This is one of those allusions, I believe, to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, this theme of salvation and exaltation and rejoicing all go together. There are dozens and dozens of references in the Old Testament where it combines rejoicing with exalting and with the salvation that God brings to people. Go ahead and turn to Habakkuk, if you would, with me. I want you to notice how similar Mary's words sound to those of the prophet Habakkuk. Now the thing we have to remember here briefly, we're looking at chapter 3, verse 18, to get there. We kind of have our, our Bible laid out nicely in chapter and verses and books and, and all of that. And so when we memorize scripture, we have a tendency to memorize chapter or verse. That wasn't the case. These, the numbers and chapters were all added. What the Hebrews did is, is they would basically immerse themselves in the scriptures and they would remember the stories and the words. And so sometimes when they would reference those or quote them, it's not always word for word, but it's the principles. Sometimes it's word for word. And we're going to see that with Mary here with one of the things she quotes. But oftentimes, they simply referred back and they alluded to. And that's what Mary is doing here, I believe. It may very well be that this verse from Habakkuk came to her mind. Look at what it says in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, Yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Does that sound an awful lot like what Mary said? Notice she says that she exalted in the Lord. She rejoiced in God my Savior. That's right out of the mouth of Habakkuk. You might also think that this sounds somewhat familiar to what Hannah did in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Remember she said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because what? I rejoice in my salvation. People have often commented on how much of what we see in Mary's hymn or song here is very similar to, this, to, the, to um, Hannah's psalm in 1 Samuel chapter 2. I encourage you to read that sometime in the next few days. You'll see some similarities there. But no doubt that likely came to her mind as well. Mary may very well have found herself in reviewing back or thinking back about Hannah and Hannah's visitation and the fact that she was barren and given a child and her child would ultimately become Samuel the prophet. And so she reflects on that as she pens this hymn of her own. Turn to Psalm Psalm 13. She probably was well versed in the Psalms as well, and I'm sure many of those came to mind. One of them may have been Psalm chapter 13. Chapter verses 5 through 16, where she says, My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You'll see that reflected in this psalm too in a minute. Isaiah chapter 61 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has closed me with garments of salvation. And so again, what we find in the Old Testament is this coupling of rejoicing and exalting 
in God who is the Savior. And I don't doubt that one of the reasons why Mary begins her psalm this way is because she was familiar with the God of the Old Testament. She understood the scriptures and she saw her own experience now reflected in what came before her. You know, oftentimes when we think of salvation, we think mainly of eternity or we think about salvation from hell or more accurately, the lake of fire. You know, that's our concept of salvation. God has saved us from that. But with Hebrews, it was very different. With Hebrews, there, there was an element of eternal salvation. But for them, salvation was much more here and now. It was much more about today and what God would do today. And again, there is the element of eternity. We find that reflected in the Old Testament, so I'm not saying that that wasn't part of their thinking. But for them, there were all these things that God had promised them here and now. If you remember, there was deliverance from their enemies, both personal and national. They looked at God as being one who would ultimately raise them up. He would lift up the humble, the poor, the downtrodden, but he would cast down the prideful and the haughty and those who oppressed Israel. It involved the restoration of Israel, ultimately coming about in the kingdom of David that we see in the book of Revelation with the thousand-year reign. And that was the anticipation. That's why many sort of misunderstood when Christ arrived. They thought he was going to come and immediately set up his earthly kingdom and restore Israel and conquer Rome and all the promises that God had made throughout the Old Testament would be fulfilled. That's what they were waiting for. That's what they expected. It was very here and now. And we're going to see each of those things reflected in what Mary does here. But it all starts not with that, but with her and her own salvation. What God has done for her. I want you to look at verse 48. There's three things that Mary does here that reflects the personal nature of what's happening. Verse 48 says, For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. That's kind of a funny statement. He had regard for her humble state. It basically means that he looked upon her with favor. That's all that means. That he looked upon her with favor. We actually see that in here. Notice how the, how the angel Gabriel first comes to her, starting in verse... We'll just read the, verses 26 through 30. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Now look at what he says to her. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed by this statement and she kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. God had bestowed his favor, he had bestowed his grace upon Mary. And as she reflects on that, she says, he has had regard for my humble estate. You know, the world fancies the rich, the powerful, the popular, the good-looking. That's not always the case with God, is it? In fact, it's never the case with God. He's not a respecter of persons. James wrote in James chapter 4, verse 6, that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to those who are humble. We see Mary's allusion to this theme 
that God favors the humble, those of lowly estate. And Mary was certainly that. We, we know that she was a humble woman as we read through this. But we also know that she was not by any means rich. In fact, when they go to the temple to present Jesus eight days later after his birth, they give up two turtle doves. According to the Old Testament, that's what poor people did. They were supposed to take a ewe lamb of some kind, sacrifice it, but for those who had very little means, God allowed them, after their purification, to present two small birds. Mary was both humble in who she was, but humble in the reality of her circumstances. And so she says that the Lord had regard for that. He had favor for me. And it's again an Old Testament illusion. Job chapter 5, I'll I'll just read these to you. Job chapter 5, verse 11. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who are mourning are lifted to safety. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I, I dwell on high places and holy places, and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Did you catch that? God says, I'm the high and exalted one, yet I live with the lowly and the contrite of heart. Psalm 138, verse 6, For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty, he knows them from afar. And so again, Mary, as she's writing this, is reflecting on what the Old Testament had taught her, about who God was. He was high and exalted. He was mighty. And yet he had regard for the lowly. Rejected the proud. In many respects, I think Mary sees this as a reversal of her status. That's actually another common theme that we find in the Old Testament, this reversal of status. In other words, God knocking down the proud and lifting up the humble. Taking those who are rich and haughty and Casting them down and lifting up those who are humble. When Jesus came, think about his relationship to the Pharisees, the rich, the powerful, the proud, the arrogant, the oppressors. And then look at how he treated the poor, the humble. They accused him of hanging out with the sinners. There's this theme of reversal that takes place with God, he flips the circumstances. And Mary sees that. God had taken her lowly estate and has lifted her up by what he's just done. He has given her favor. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. This is exactly what we see in Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those 
But blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven and is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice the reversal there. The poor inherit the kingdom. Those who mourn are comforted. Those who are thirsty for righteousness are satisfied. So again, there's this theme of reversal that takes place throughout the Old Testament and even Jesus. And we see that here with Mary as she reflects on that. Sees herself as a lowly, humble servant. Notice she refers to herself that way. For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave, his servant. And she has seen God reach down and give her favor just like she had been taught about God throughout the Old Testament. The second thing that we see Mary say that God has done, he's not only seen her lowly estate and given her favor, but she says simply, he's done great things. Look at verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and his name is holy. You know, you can sense not only the gratitude, but the awe for which Mary speaks these words. Notice she starts it this way. Look at the contrast here, verse 49. For the mighty one... The Mighty One has done great things for me. And you can almost sense as she's looking at that, wow, God of the universe, God of Israel, has done great things for me. Me. God doesn't do great things for me. He does great things for everybody else. For all those famous prophets and all those... But for me, you know, oftentimes as I pray, find myself thinking, wow, here I am in my bed. I like to, my prayer time is usually when I first wake up in the morning and then the first time I go, or when I first go to bed at night. And oftentimes I think, wow, you know, this is pretty incredible. I'm one man on a planet of seven billion people but I've got the ear of the one who created everything. Why does he have time for me? Did you ever think about that? This is the creator God of the universe. And he listens to us. He does great things for us. Scriptures tell us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That puts that into a whole new perspective. And as Mary is looking up at the the angel and as she reflects on all of this and as she thinks about what God has done, she's like, He has done great things for me, a sinner. And we know she thought of herself that way because she refers to herself as lowly estate, but also she referenced God as her Savior. She understood who she was. And so God has done these great things for me. The the sense of awe was not lost on Mary as to what he had just done. The last thing that she kind of reflects on here regarding herself is that he was merciful to her. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. You may notice in some of your Bibles they make capitalize that. It's a reference back to Psalm 103, verse 17. In the Hebrew version of that verse, 
It actually says that his loving kindness is upon generation after generation. That's that Hebrew word hesed that refers to God's covenant loyalty and faithfulness. It appears that Mary is probably quoting here from the Septuagint version, which is the Greek version, which is mostly what the apostles would have used. It's what the Apostle Paul may have used. Um, The reason why that word is slightly different there is probably because when the Septuagint was translated, they took that word and translated it into one of its primary meanings. And one of the primary meanings of that Greek word hesed, it's a very broad word. It's, I like to summarize it as God's covenant loyalty because, because it includes everything from his mercy to his salvation to his grace. All of that is wrapped up in that one word. And so Mary thinks of this and she reflects on it as God's mercy. And we're going to see that come up again because everything is tied into God's mercy. His covenant loyalty to Israel is wrapped up in his mercy. Think about it. We went through the book of Judges not too long, too long ago. How many times did the Lord have to extend mercy to Israel? And so he's a God of mercy, and she says, He was merciful to me. The Old Testament makes it clear that those who fear the Lord are the ones who serve Him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, many individuals, and probably me to to some degree, um, believes that this phrase, fearing the Lord in the Old Testament, is the equivalent of New Testament salvation. When we're told that Job feared the Lord, the way that that, that term is really used would be very similar to us in the New Testament with our faith in Christ. In other words, when, when the Old Testament referred to somebody who feared the Lord, it meant they were saved. It meant they were in the right relationship with Him. Much like we say today, I have faith in Christ. And so Mary reflects on that and she basically says that the Lord has had mercy and she doesn't say on me specifically here but that's the context. She's saying that he has mercy on generation after generation because they fear him which means she understood that the Lord was having mercy on her because of her fear and reverence for the Lord. So as I look at this first part of this I am struck by the personal nature of it and the awe Again, she understood the Old Testament, and we're going to see that in a moment here as we talk about what the Lord's done for Israel. But the place that she begins is on reflecting on what it all meant for her personally to be visited by the Lord and to be told that she would be the one that would carry the child that would redeem and restore all of Israel. And it was very personal to her. And it all begins with, He's my Savior first. I think sometimes we lose sight of that. I've been saved for some almost 40 years now, and um, sometimes I lose that sense of awe. You know, I've often heard people say, Jesus would have died if I were the only person on earth. That's a trite statement, but you know what? It's probably true. Because it is about individual salvation. It's not just about the salvation of the world, it's about us as individuals. And Mary recognized that. Like I said, you can see the awe in her words. But from there she goes on and she's now going to rejoice over what this meant for Israel, what God has actually done for Israel. I'm going to read, I think I'll read all, let me go ahead and read all the verses, 51 through 55. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones 
and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And then we see that Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned to her home. So Mary now turns her attention to what the Lord has done for Israel at this moment. Now the overarching theme of this second half is actually the mercy of God. And it's the mercy of God revealed through him fulfilling his promises to Israel. And you're going to see that kind of come out a little bit here. He originally promised Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob and then ultimately Israel that he would send somebody to come as Messiah. Messiah would restore things, would save Israel. Ultimately, he told Abraham, be the blessing for the world. So she reflects on that. Genesis chapter 17, verse 19 says this, But God said, No, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. He's saying this to Abraham. And you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And you know that word descendant is also the word seed. It's singular in the Greek or in the Hebrew text, but in the singular form it can refer to a single descendant, but it can also refer to descendants, plural. And so there's a double sense to that word. Paul focuses on the single nature of that word in the book of Galatians when he says that the seed there promised to Abraham was ultimately Christ. But it's also to be understood as plural, meaning all of Israel. And so what God promised was that Abraham would bear a son, Isaac, and the Lord would make an everlasting covenant, not just with Isaac, but with Isaac's descendants all the way down and be ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So he, God actually confirmed that covenant when Isaac was born. And then we see that successively fulfilled throughout the Old Testament. Now what's interesting to me is that Mary is reflecting on that and she unfolds it kind of in an interesting way. She's going to make a number of references here. Some of them are allusions to the Old Testament. Some of, her, um, some of them are probably paraphrases of particular verses. But notice this. She begins in verse 51 by declaring what God has done. Look at verse 51. He has done mighty deeds. That sounds almost very similar to what she said about herself, doesn't it? He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Now what's interesting is the Old Testament is filled with references, I think there's almost a dozen of them, to the Lord's arm. And it's a symbol of his power and his might, much like his right hand. I have to give you my right hand. His right hand is a sign of power and strength. And Mary actually draws on that imagery here. Notice again, she says that the Lord has done mighty deeds with his arm. And it's with his arm that he has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. It's also with his mighty arm that he brings down the rulers of their thrones. He's exalted those who were humble. Verse 52. Verse 53 says, And he has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Verse 54, He's given help to Israel, his servant. you notice the reversal again there? Mary alluded to her own reversal of circumstances. He's given favor to one who didn't deserve it. 
and has ultimately lifted her up out of her lowly estate. Here we see something very similar. Notice the contrast here. The proud are scattered. The rulers are basically knocked off their thrones, but the humble are then lifted up. Those who are hungry, fills with good things, but he sends away the empty, or he sends away those who are rich, who have everything. But you notice how she actually, as she's talking about what the Lord has done for Israel, in this announcement that she's just received, and again, remember, she understands what the Lord has just done. That the child that is now within her womb is the promised Messiah that will fulfill all of the promises made to Israel. She understands that. But the way that she unfolds this, by referencing God's mighty arm, is that she sees that as God's victory. Because when you look at the passage in the Old Testament that talk about his arm, they're about victory. And she sees this ultimately as a great victory for God and for Israel and what he's done. Which is why she references these verses that talk about scattering the proud and knocking the rulers off of their thrones and lifting up the humble. It's a victory for God. Isn't that the way we see ultimately the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? That's a victory of God over his enemies, of life over death. And that's the imagery that she's focusing on here. She sees this as a great victory for God and for Israel. Mary concludes her hymn by summarizing all of this. Look at verse 54 and 55 again. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. There it is again. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. You know, it's interesting, when the Bible speaks of remembering, God remembering, it's often a reference to him acting on our behalf. In other words, God just doesn't remember us. When he remembers, it means he's acting, doing something on our behalf. And he did that right here. Notice she starts out by saying, he gave help to Israel. Why? In remembrance of his mercy. Ultimately, the covenant, the everlasting covenant that was made between God and Abraham and his descendants was one of mercy because they did not deserve the favor that he had bestowed upon them. They have a history, and we've seen this history time and time and time again in the Old Testament where the Lord's mercy was poured out on Israel even though they didn't deserve it. That's his help. And he now delivers this help to Israel in the form of the promised Messiah. He promised his mercy to Israel and that it would be an everlasting covenant and all of that now Mary sees is coming to fruition that God has finally given help to Israel and what's about to take place in the birth of the child that she's now got in her womb I love this passage it's very personal the allusions to the Old Testament which gives me a new fondness and understanding of who Mary was. I'm shocked at the thought of a young woman, age 13 or 14, and having this placed upon her. But I believe that one of the reasons why she accepted it so willingly was because of 
obviously her understanding of who God was and there is no way that she could have had the understanding she has here and reflected the way that she did without a deeply personal relationship with him and understanding first what he had done for her and then what that ultimately meant for all of Israel. When Amy called me on Thursday, um, we started to realize Wednesday that Jerry probably wasn't going to make it. So we were, at that point, just waiting. And when she called me about, I think it was about 5.15 on Thursday and told me that Jerry had passed, I was immediately hit with two emotions. One of them was grief. One of them was grief because of the earthly loss. Amy and I, when we got married, I gave her two options, Green Bay or here. And the reason was I wanted my daughters to grow up around grandparents who love the Lord. And I realized the influence they would have. And so we chose to stay here because it was close to Amy's parents and it was within driving distance of my parents. And I could not have imagined then the influence that such a godly grandfather would be on his own grandchildren. And so immediately when Amy told me that he had passed, I was filled with grief. But at the same time, I was filled with this sense of awe, thinking, in a moment, he went from struggling to breathe here to literally being in the presence of Christ in paradise. And I thought to myself, the awe that he must have been sensing at that moment as his faith became sight. Very personal thing. That's what the Lord has done. He did that for Mary and she understood it and she reflects on it and she says, God, my Savior. And I would imagine those were probably the very first words out of Jerry's mouth as he looked at Christ. Jesus, my Savior. And so we walk this fine line sometimes between living in this world, filled with all of its stuff, and sometimes we, I think we have a tendency, especially if you've been saved as long as I have, we have a tendency sometimes to sort of become numb. Just, you know, we lose that sense of awe and wonder at what Christ has done for us personally in saving us. And that's something that we ought to have every day, to be real honest. I know it's hard. <laughs> you know, one of my favorite times of year has always been Christmas. I love meeting with family. This year is obviously going to be a challenge. Um, but I've always loved it because it's just a, a neat time of year. and we, We've always been family-focused. Growing up, we would have all of my dad's brothers and sisters and cousins over. There'd be 50 people crammed into my parents' house. It was a 1,200-square-foot you know, ranch. And I love that because of family and everything else. But obviously, after coming to know Christ personally, it takes on a different meaning. And so sometimes I have to remind myself. And so one of the things I love about Christmas is it's a good time for me to do a reset. 
It's a good time to me to say, as much as I love the lights and the gifts and the family, this is really about what Christ has done personally for me. And so I'm thankful for that. Those who say we shouldn't celebrate Christmas, God set up all kinds of Old Testament celebrations for the Jews to remember him. So while it may not be about all of the gifts and the lights and all that, it's a good time for us, I think, to reflect on the fact that it really is, and this is a trite statement, Christ really is the reason for the season, is he not? really is. So my my challenge to you this morning is to kind of reset. Ask yourself, am I really in awe of what God has done for me?